Tonight we're going to go back and do just a little bit of review in those early verses and then move a little further in the chapter. One year prior to Paul's writing 2 Corinthians, he was in the city of Corinth. And while there, he challenged those Corinthian believers about a special need of those in Jerusalem. Hearing about their need, they quickly and zealously responded by making a commitment to give. Paul, assuming they were sincere, boasted to the Macedonians about what those Corinthians had done. And when those Macedonians heard this, it stirred their hearts, and they likewise made a commitment to give. And we see the, we see the example of their giving in verses 1 through verse 5. First, we noted that God bestowed grace on them, and grace bestowed will always be grace expressed. And then we saw the expression of the grace in verse 2 through verse 5. In verse 2, they kept their promise in spite of two very serious problems, great affliction and deep poverty. In verse 3, we see them giving two ways. First, to their power, which obviously means they sacrificed. And then they gave beyond their power by faith. We expanded that last night by pointing out to you that we're not talking about something and limiting his faith promise tonight. We're talking about grace giving. Because, you see, under grace you can make a sacrifice promise, or you can make a faith promise, and we added this, you can also make an abundance promise. My challenge to you is give as the Lord lays on your heart. The reason for the giving in verse 4 was others. Now, it's clear benevolence is seen in verse 4, but I believe we proved to you last night that the major reason for the giving was not for benevolence, but was for missions. We saw that in Philippians 4. We saw it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll not take time to go back to those verses. Just take my word for it. I proved it. But if you aren't satisfied, talk to me later. And I'll be happy to go through those scriptures with you again. But the important thing to remember is that it, is that it was for others. And how can they do this? What was it about these believers that enabled them to give the way they gave? We saw the answer in verse 5, because they first gave themselves. I remind us all again tonight that God really doesn't need any money. Believe me, he's not a pauper. Uh, he's not on the way to the poorhouse. I mean, God's got it made. He owns everything. If he didn't have enough, he can make more. And by the way, God can create gold as easy as he could create dirt. So he'd have no trouble making more gold if he needed to. God really doesn't need money. What God needs is us. My friend, if you give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ in absolute and total commitment, it'll revolutionize your life. What God wants is your heart. Then please note with me verse 6, as Paul turns his attention now directly to those believers in Corinth. Insomuch that we desire Titus, that as he had begun, so he'd also finish in you the same grace also. Let me give you Hawes' paraphrase of that verse, kind of an expanded paraphrase. Paul says, Titus, something I want you to do for me. Well, what is it, Paul? You remember a year ago, those Corinthians made that promise to give? Yep, I remember. They haven't kept that promise. So why don't you go to Corinth for me? I want you to preach those Corinthians and finish in them that same grace also. Now what grace is he talking about? That same grace he bestowed on the Macedonians in verse 1. Now Titus, go help those Corinthians so that they can keep that commitment and God can bestow that grace on them also. Now Titus comes to Corinth. What do you suppose he preached about? Money? I doubt it. I think what he did was just reared back and aimed right straight for the heart. Because you see, friends, the key to the wallet is kept in the heart. Did you know tonight there's no such thing as a church financial problem? 
I hear about them all the time. But there's no such thing. That's just a symptom of the problem. You see, folks aren't tithing. It's a heart problem. I give you the missions. It's a heart problem. By the way, we can enlarge that. Every so-called problem in every church, no matter what you name it, is just a symptom of the real problem. It's a heart problem. Folks aren't giving. It's a heart problem. They aren't witnessing. It's a heart problem. Aren't praying, reading the Bible. It's a heart problem. Aren't faithful in church. It's a heart problem. Living cantankerous lives. It's a heart problem. So you see, every problem in every church is a problem of the heart. Now, Titus, go to Corinth. Try to help those believers and preach to their hearts so that God can finish in them that same grace, that grace of giving also. In the early years of my ministry, I preached on all the symptoms. If I identified a new one, I nailed it. One day it occurred to me, why not just go for the juggler and preach to the heart? Because, you see, God's people will never be faithful in witnessing, serving, praying, Bible study, or anything else till God has their heart. So if that's your problem tonight, why don't you just let him have your heart? And that'll solve your problems, every one of them. Now, verse 7, he begins to commend them, kind of brag on them for some of the positive graces already in their lives. There's some good stuff here in verse 7. Look at it. Therefore, as you're bound in everything. And then he names some good stuff here. In faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us. Then he pauses, <clears throat> clears his throat. And by the way, see that you're bound in this grace also. What grace? That grace of giving that he bestowed on those Macedonians in verse 1. Now, essentially, this is what Paul's driving at. Corinth. Thank God for all the good and the positive graces in your life. But is it possible, do you have the spiritual potential whereby God can bestow upon you yet another grace? The grace to give in ways you never dreamed that you would be able to give. I ask you tonight that same question. If you're not involved in this thing of giving for missions through this church, with all the good things that I'm sure can be said about you, is it possible there's enough room in your heart for God to bestow another grace, that grace of giving? Then after saying all that, he cuts them some slack. You like slack? Everybody likes slack. He cuts them some. Look in verse 8. I speak not by commandment. I think sometimes I can audibly hear people relax. Whew, what a relief. I thought I was nailed to the wall on this thing. But I read it right here in my Bible. <clears throat> if I don't want to do this, I don't have to do it. You know something? You're right. You don't have to do this. This is not a command. Isn't it rather wonderful that God gives us something to do for him just because we want to? Not because we have to. Oh, by the way, make no mistake about it. There's a lot we are commanded to do. We're commanded to tithe. We're commanded to be faithful in church. We're commanded to be a witness. We're commanded to live holy lives. But here's something that you can do for God, not because you're commanded to do it, but just because you love God and want to do it. This is not a command. Now, think for just a moment about those Macedonians back there in verse 3. Paul came to Corinth, shared with those Corinthians this great need, and those 
those Macedonia rather, and those Macedonians, when they heard about this, made a commitment to give. And guess what they did? They gave because they're willing of themselves. Not because God, that Paul put them on a guilt trip, and not because he put pressure on them. He simply shared the need. By the way, that's all it ought to take for anybody. All a preacher ought to have to do is stand up and say, folks, here is a need. And let God deal with the heart. This is not a command. You see, those believers had learned a great truth. Remember the passage in the book of Acts where the Bible tells us that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive? Now, how do you interpret that verse? I like listening to testimonies. And uh, I think we ought to always thank God for what he does for us or what others do for us. But when's the last time you heard somebody give this testimony? I want to thank the Lord tonight that has made it possible for me to give. Because, see, friends, that's where the blessings are found. Now, where do you get yours? In the getting or in the giving? Spiritual believers learn that the blessings are found in the giving. Now, <clears throat> sometime before the week is over, I'm going to take about an hour after service and show a video presentation or DVD presentation of my grandchildren. So don't plan to rush away when that night comes along. It won't take over an hour. And uh, you, you'll get a blessing out of it, I'm sure. But let me tell you just a word about my youngest grandson. He started college this year. He's my buddy, and I miss him. But uh, when he was about 11 years old, I believe he was about 11 years old, around Christmas time, I said this to him. I said, Brennan, and I talked to him like an adult ever since he was a child. I said, I gave your Nana a digital camera for Christmas. And I'll never forget the way he responded to me. He said, you know, Pop Pop, and that's what my grandkids call me. I wish I could afford to gift stuff like that. You notice what he said? Now, what would many... Young people, or older people for that matter, have said in response to what I said, I wish somebody would give me a digital camera. That was not his response, because that was not his heart, because that kid had learned as a child that he got more blessings out of giving than he did in receiving. Where did he get yours? Where did he get yours? My friend, we're talking here about the grace of giving. So this is not a command. They learned that great truth. That it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Then look, please, down in verse 12, the first part of the verse. For if there be first a what kind of mind? A willing mind. So you see, friends, it's not really the money that God wants. What God wants is the willing mind. So tonight, if you're not willing to do this, just keep your money. Because I promise you, God can survive without it. What he wants is your heart. Now, Chapter 8 and chapter 9 are tied together, as I've explained this week. With that in mind, go to chapter 9 and drop down to verse 7, because it impacts on that same statement. I speak not by commandment. Chapter 9 and verse 7. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. So where is the decision about this offering made? It's made in your heart. Now you may say, well, Brother Halsey, how will I know what God wants me to do? You know that's the easiest problem you have? 
is knowing what he wants you to do. If you're struggling with it, I promise you, if you really want to know the will of God, if your heart's open, you really want to know what God wants you to do about this offering and how much he wants you to do, I promise you, you will know. You can rebel against it, but you can know what God wants you to do. Let me illustrate it. I raised three children. These are my youngest as an illustration. My daughter lives about 10 minutes from me. Let's suggest that when she was a teenager, I leave home one morning and I say, Lisa, while I'm gone today, there's something I want you to do for me. And she says, okay, Daddy, what is it? And I say, yes. But she says, Daddy, please tell me what it is you want me to do. Okay, come get on your knees and beg me. You beg me long enough, hard enough, maybe I'll tell you what it is I want you to do. Well, please, Daddy, tell me what it is you want. And I say, okay, I give you three choices. You decide what you try to decide which one you think it is. Does that make any sense? Of course not. If there's something I want my daughter to do, don't you think I'm going to try to make it clear? If there's something you want your children to do, aren't you going to try to make it clear? Now, they can rebel against it, close their mind, but you're going to try to make it clear, are you not? Now, I'm God's child. He's a far better communicator than me. And you know, God's always given me stuff to do. You have that issue in your life as well? Does it make me begging to know what it is? Uh, does it give me multiple choice? Does it make me guess? No. If God has a will for me, then surely he wants me to know what it is. Does that make sense? If he has a will for you, don't you think he's going to try to make it clear? Certainly he will. God wants us to know his will. And God knows how to communicate his will to us. Now again, you can close your mind to it. But if your heart's open, you want to know the will of God, I promise you, you will know it. I'll give you something to really encourage you. If God could communicate clearly to Balaam's donkey, don't you think he can get through to you? Absolutely. Therefore, as a man purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly. Well, I'll do it. But I'm not excited about it. I give a little. Why don't you just keep your money? Or of necessity, it means of constraint or feeling compelled. Oh, no, you're not compelled. You don't have to do this because God loves what kind of giver? Now, if God loves a cheerful giver, what does it think about the grumpy giver? You love that? Some old cantankerous Christian comes in, bent all out of shape, all, all upset about this thing, and say, well, I guess I give a little. God said, no, keep your money. If I want it, I could get it easy enough. What I'm trying to get, your heart. Until I have your heart, just keep your money. This is not a command. Let me illustrate it by telling you a story. That's not a true story. I made it up. Man comes home from work one evening to find his wife. Worst men love finding our wives at supper time in the kitchen. If I come home in the evening, my wife is not in the kitchen. I don't smell anything. No dishes rattling. Lights out. She's in a lazy boy. A better word it, the lazy girl. I don't know if it's going to be McDonald's or local cafeteria or where, but one thing's for sure, it's not that kitchen. But this guy found his wife right where he hoped she'd be, in the kitchen, preparing his dinner. He walked in the kitchen. 
stands right beside her. She's at the counter, busy getting everything ready. Got a box in his hands. Box about that long. My wife was here tonight. She could tell you exactly how long that box was. And it's about that height, about that wide. Big red ribbon around the box. Now, what's in that box? What kind of flowers? What kind of red flowers? What kind of red roses? Long stem, uh-huh. Those are the expensive ones. I asked a florist once when I was on one of those trips, you know. I said, why do these long stem roses cost more than short ones? They're making sense to me. Takes extra labor, takes stems off. Oaks part of roses, stem, leave stem on price, goes through the roof. She did this. I don't know. So I paid the price. But anyway, back to the story. She sees the box. <clears throat> when he sees, that she sees the box. He takes the box like this, raises it up over the counter, and lets it fall. Plop. Suspect. There they are. You belly ache. Complained ever since we've been married. You didn't bring me flowers. And you've called the name of every man in the church brings flowers says, Why, but you must not love me. Bless God, there they are. And by the way, I left a bill on them. <laughs> I want you to know what they cost. We need the money for a lot of our stuff. You didn't care about that. You just wanted roses. Bless God, there they are. Enjoy them. He turns, walks out of the kitchen. <clears throat> would you want those roses? I bet you would. How about you? Would, you? would you want those roses? You're not sure. How about you? Would you want those roses? Of course not. It wouldn't matter what those roses cost, nor how beautiful they are. Because, see, it's not really the roses you want. What you want is his heart. If you don't have his heart, you don't want his roses. My friend, it's not your money that God really wants. What God wants is your heart. And if he doesn't have your heart, why don't you just keep your money? You see, my friends, this is not a command. You feel better now? Now that you know you don't have to do this, you've kind of relieved. You think you can enjoy the rest of the service now? No, you don't have to do this thing. But I got bad news for you. Now I got to make you feel bad. Go back to that eighth verse again. I speak not by commandment. But by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Ouch. That hurts. You don't have to do this. But if you do it, you prove something. And what do you prove? You prove that you meant what you said when you said, Lord, I love you. Now, what is love? There are some who believe that love is some kind of a feeling or some kind of an emotion. If it is, I have a problem. And the gospel are told to love our enemies. And there's some guy trying to get a knife in my back. And I say, oh, I love being around you. I have just wonderful feelings whenever I'm in your presence. I can't bear to be apart from you while they're trying to kill me. Please pray for me if that's love. But in that same passage, it explains how to love your enemies. It has nothing to do with the way that you feel about them. It has everything to do with what you do in regard to your enemies. If they do bad things to you, <clears throat> you do good things to them. 
If any spiteful use and abuse you, you pray for them. So you see, friends, love is not something that you feel. Love is something that you do. Love is action. Love is a verb. It's not a noun. But here's the best of all. He says, prove the sincerity of your love. Then in verse 9, he shares with us the way that Jesus proved his love for us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. And by the way, we're talking about grace giving this week, aren't we? Who is the greatest grace giver of all? Jesus. Well, how did the greatest grace giver of all times prove to us that he loves us? It's right here in this verse. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. What are you talking about here? The cross. If the time ever came, then I wondered, does Jesus love me? All I'd have to do is take one quick look at the cross. That's all the proof I would ever need. Because when Jesus Christ died on that cross, he proved to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loved me. And he proved it to you as well. This young Christian says, I love God. I don't see what giving has to do with it. I'll tell you what, let's turn that thing over and look at it from his perspective. Was Jesus looking for an easy and painless way to prove to us that he loved us when he left heaven, came down to earth, identified with those who despised him? Was he looking for an easy and painless way to, to prove that he loved us when they took him in that mock trial? What do you mean by that, uh, that whip called a cat of nine tails? Isaiah tells us that they plowed furs in his back. Was he looking for an easy way to prove that he loved us when he just stood there? I believe they paraded by him and spat in his face. Now the trails his cheeks, blood, tears, and spittle. And I believe they literally yanked his beard from his face. And again, Isaiah tells us that his visage was so marred you couldn't even tell that it was a man. To be in their fist with rods. Then he compelled him to bear his own cross up Golgotha. And drove those harbor spikes, his hands and his feet. And as he hung there, that mocking crowd screaming, crucify him, crucify him. I ask you tonight, was Jesus looking for an easy and painless way to prove to us that he loved us? Not on your life. He knew what it would take to prove it before we left heaven. You see, for God so loved the world that he gave. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and, there it is, friends. Jesus loves us, and he proved it by giving. And now some Christian says, <laughs> I love God. But I don't see what giving has to do with it. You know what you ought to do if that's the way you think? Just be honest with yourself. 
Now, you don't have to share your honesty with me, with the pastor, or anyone else, but at least to yourself. Be honest. And the truth is, if that's your attitude, you really don't love Jesus. What you love is your stuff. What you love is yourself. Because, you see, friends, love is proved by giving. So my question tonight is this. Do you love Jesus Christ with all your heart? I'm sure probably every believer in this place is a yes, yes preacher. I sure do. You know, some time ago, a number of years back now, I can't remote, recall just how long it was. You know, my wife and I, like every couple ought to do, we share our love regularly. I'll say to her, I love you, and she'll respond in kind or reverse. But I never forget, one time, a few years back, she's done it several times since then, by the way, but that one time she responded to me differently when I said to her, I love you. And she responded to me that way, that night, in a different way. And it sent chills up and down my spine. She said this, when I said, I love you, she said, I know it. I know it. You know what it said to me? There's something about the way that I live with that woman. There's something in the way that I treat that woman. So that she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that I love her. Now, she won't say it every time because she's afraid she'll spoil me. But you cannot imagine what it means to me to know that my wife knows that I love her. My question tonight is, you say you love Jesus. Does he know it? If you ask him tonight, Jesus, do you know if I love you or not? Now, if you won't give, I can tell you how you'll answer. If you won't live for him, <clears throat> I'll tell you <clears throat> how he would answer. If you won't be faithful in his church, I will tell you how he would answer. If you won't talk up for him and witnessing, I can tell you how he would answer. But how would he answer you tonight? If you said, Lord, I love you. Frankly, tonight, if there's a question in my heart about whether he knows I love him or not, I love him or not, I'd want to get that resolved before I went home. At least sometime before the, before the cock crows tomorrow morning, you take a little while just to talk to him. So, Lord, I love you. Then you listen to see how he responds. You don't have to do this. This is not a command. But if you love Jesus, here is a way to prove it.